Hey, y'all, welcome back to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. I am your host, Heather McFadden, and this is the place where I'm going to come alongside you and connect you with people and resources so you know that you don't mom alone. In this episode number 263, I have the privilege of introducing you to Victoria Peterson. Again, the greatest encouragement to me has been knowing who I am in Christ, knowing that He created me in His image, and I'm supposed to be an image bearer. I am an image bearer, naturally, because I was made by Him. And so I think foster parents remembering that that is also true for them, that they are image bearers, and in those hard times, to be able to humble themselves and say, I am weak and I'm going to call on God's strength to love this child, and also communicating to the child that they are made in God's image. They are loved despite any kind of behavior or any saddening event that they have been through. I think that identity in Christ is crucial to the relationship of a foster youth and foster parent on the hard and the easy days. Such a foundational truth for all of us to remember who we are and whose we are. I know that that is such a buzz conversation that's going around, but often we are operating out of a place of forgetfulness. In our daily interactions, we are forgetting the truth of who we are. And I'm so thankful for Victoria Hope Peterson, better known as Tori, to come on the show today, share her experience in the foster care system between the ages of 12 and 18, the 12 different homes she was in, and how God provided hope, how He provided people to point her back to that hope. And the second half of our conversation focuses in on the second half of her life since emancipating from the foster care system, her story of pregnancy outside of marriage, uh, then her early marriage and the church and how we have the opportunity as a community to come alongside each other and point each other back to the gospel and to root out the causes behind our choices. Um, I think she provides a lot of insight there. So before we get to that, though, I want to tell you about a great resource. If you are a parent of a child between the ages of four and seven, you need to check out the app Phonics Museum. It's a tool that's going to help your child learn how to read and record speed. There's over 900 videos, songs, games, I mean, real people talking and helping your child learn the phonics rules so that they can read well. It's helpful for all different kinds of learners. It's based on a classical education phonics curriculum by Veritas Press. Just go to your iOS store, check out the Phonics Museum app. You can try it for free for two weeks. And then you could sign up for a monthly subscription or annual for up to three kids on one account. It's fantastic. Go check it out. Phonics Museum in your iOS store. All right, let's get to my chat with Tori. Here we go. Hey, Tori, thank you for being so brave and coming on the Don't Mom Alone podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. We are ready. We're ready to hear your story. We're ready to hear more about what brought you to the place where you are today and the people involved and just all that God's redeemed and restored. And so tell us a little bit, take us back to where all of this began. Okay. So I like to start with my first memory because it's pretty wild. Okay. I lived in Toledo, Ohio with my biological mother and her boyfriend. I think I was around four and a SWAT team busted through our door. They start pulling 
all of the drugs, the Ziploc bags from on top of the wardrobe, inside drawers, and just throwing them all over our house. One of the men in uniform asked me, do you know what this is? And my mom had trained me before this point to know that police were bad. They wanted to take me away from my mom. And so I knew to say no, even though I was very aware of what it was. As a four-year-old, you were very aware that the substance was wrong and there was a problem. Not necessarily that it was a problem, but I knew my mom had told me, this is our secret. We don't tell anybody about this. Mm. We definitely don't tell police. We don't like police, Mm. which that's a whole nother subject on police brutality and how that really manifests because so many populations are trained from a young age to think about police in this way. So moving away from that, though, (laughs) because that's a whole big subject. Yeah. But this was your story. This is the truth of your story. Your mom. I mean, I'm think I'm picturing a four year old girl. That's little. Yes. Yep. That's little. And you already had these impressions. And that's a very stressful situation for an adult. So this police SWAT person is asking you if you knew what it was. What happened next? A woman, woman in uniform, kind of swooped me up, had me on her arm. She started to walk me to the backyard, and my mom was on the kitchen crying. There were guns pointed at her, and she just kept saying, my baby, don't take my baby, don't take my baby. Mm. And I went to my first foster home. Immediately. Immediately, yeah. With anything? I don't remember having anything. Okay. I was actually in the back of a SWAT car. So it was just like a big box. There were no seats in it. Hmm. And I just sat. It was like I was sitting on the floor of a box, riding to my first foster home. Hmm. I'm sad, Tori. I know. I know it's sad. Looking back, it is a very sad situation and thinking of like my son ever, yeah. you know, the children that I love ever being in a situation like that. I know that it's so sad and this sounds so strange, but it was like, that was just my life. It didn't even feel strange because when you're four, you only have so much context and you're like, it's not like this is wrong or this is sad or this makes me mad. It's just like, this is my life and this is what's going on. And so it's strange to look back at the moment and think of all of those moments of like my mom weeping on the floor and the policeman throwing all these bags everywhere and just being like, this is my life. Wow. And that was your first foster experience. How many homes, how long were you in foster care? I was in that home for about six months. And then I was actually reunified with my biological mother going into foster care. Usually every state's objective when a child gets taken away from their biological parent is reunification. And many states will push hard for that, even when it's not best for the child. So I was reunified with my mom after six months, and I lived with her until I was 12. And then I went back into the foster care system because a teacher noticed scratches on my neck and took me down to the guidance counselor's office. They called Job and Family Services, um, who investigated everything. Then there were more bruises. 
And then I went into foster care all over again and stayed in until I emancipated out of care when I turned 18. And I went through 12 different homes, group homes and foster homes and respite homes, which are like respite homes are short term where foster homes are considered long term. And then group homes are like residential facilities that typically have an objective for why you're staying there. So I went through 12 of those homes throughout the years from 12 to 18. I feel like you said so much in such a short amount of time. Yes, I probably did. <laughs> no, which is, like I said, we, we don't have so very long to tell your story, but I have so many questions. Like if you could compare those seven and a half years to the six years in foster care where you're going home to home to home, like even with I'm guessing physical abuse. Is that why they were saying scratches and bruises? Yes. From my mom. From your mom, what what you experienced with your biological mom? I mean, neither one to me is what I I picture God. <laughs> like when he thinks of the care of Tori, I don't love either. But you were the one who experienced both. And what words do you put around that when you compare being with a biological mom who's not treating you in the way that God intended you to be treated versus being with new people constantly who some may or may not have treated you like God intended. I feel like living with my biological mother, the word I think is hopeless. Hmm. It felt like there was no way to escape the abuse. And I forgot to mention this for some context to my mom is diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia um, and she heavily uses drugs. So it felt like I can never escape this environment and the patterns of that environment. And I had a teacher in, in the seventh grade who had us all read the seven habits of a highly affected teenager. And while we were reading it, he said something along the lines of like, if you guys do not apply these habits to your life, many of you are going to end up like your parents. And that speech really changed the trajectory of how I looked at my life. And I could imagine in my head, the abuse, where we lived, we didn't live in a good neighborhood. My mom always talked about the crackheads breaking into our house. And I have a sister who is 10 years younger than me. And I took care of her and I thought, this is not the life that I want for my children. And because of that, I started changing my habits dramatically. And I started really thinking about what life do I want for my children. But while I was living with my mom, it just felt hopeless. Like, how do I have this life when I'm in this life? When I went into foster care, even though there was adversity, and even though there were people who didn't necessarily treat me I would say, as if I was a child of God, there were people who were so supportive, who were loving. And I would say, not necessarily, I did have good foster parents, but those people were mainly people within the church community. And that is what I would say brought hope into my life. The encouragement, the support, and the ability to see that through their words, through God speaking through these people and acting through these people in love, 
showed me that I did have a future, that God did have a plan for me, and that if I trusted in him, that plan would blossom into into something. I just had to hold on to to the faith and hope that he has instilled in me. And I, I really do think that hope has, oh, even before I was saved, even before I knew Christ, I really, my middle name is Hope. And I think that God, I don't not, I don't think that's an accident. I think like you God were just, given that name, yes. that was your birth name. Okay. And my first name is Victoria, which means victory. And I really do feel like that is something that God has just spoken over me my entire life. He's given me the gift of, of hope. I was just reading in Romans, it was talking about Abraham, who in hope, against all hope, <laughs> believed that God would fulfill the promise of descendants, even though he was 100, even though his wife was barren. It was like, even though the circumstances are completely bleak for God to do what he's promised to do, he hoped. And that faith in something better is what sustains. I mean, hope is like a word that means nothing until you need it. If you, like you said, if you are in that hopeless situation and to be given biblical hope, who was the one who led you to Jesus and to the gospel and the good news? So I'm going to give a little bit of context. So first, my 11th foster home. So this is my second to last foster home. And how old are you? I, I am 16 or 17 yeah, I think I'm like um, about to turn 17. So once I entered that home and these two parents, husband and wife, they had a great reputation in our town. He was the treasurer of our town. She was a child psychiatrist. She had like written a book about children going into foster care. They were very admired. They had adopted three children and they said that they were Christian and we were going to church kind of regularly. And I had just read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, yeah. and that was, yeah. I know she is an atheist, and she is like everything yes. not Christian, yes. but she really sparked a lot of questions in me about God for the first time. I started to read philosophy um, and more books about religion, just because I had so many questions, and I wanted to know if there was a God, who this God was, and through that process, God just slowly did a lot of work in my heart, planting seeds, watering those seeds through the church that we are going to, answering my questions through sermons, through the books that I was reading. And I was, but I was confused because those foster parents abused two out of the three of their adopted kids. I thought I'm learning about this very loving, merciful God who loves his children. And the conclusion that I felt I came to, I was singing good, good father. And I was always really bitter that I did not have a consistent father, that just that I didn't have parents, but really that I didn't have like consistent, good parents, but really that I didn't have a father. And the way that I had relationships with young men as a young woman was not healthy. And I knew that it was because I didn't have good men role models. And it was so frustrating to me because I felt like I couldn't break out of the cycle. And I was seeing good, good father and a realization just rolled over me that God did not give me a father because he does everything to 
to glorify him ultimately. And that like this life that he has given me, I hope brings glory to him because it shows that he is the author and father of my life. He has protected me and loved me more so than any earthly father could. It was such a confusion to see this earthly father who said that he was Christian, which means Christ-like, but he did not manifest Christ-like behaviors to these children of God who were vulnerable and who needed him. More than there are, so, we see so many statistics and research about the the importance of good fathers, and it's like these children need you more than anything on this earth, and you are failing them. And that was so confusing to me. They were actually caught abusing their foster children. So I had to be moved or their adopted children. So I had to be moved out of the home immediately. And I went to my last foster home. This woman was so Christ-like. We went to church every week. She really was a reflection of Christ. And we did devotions together. And I think my questions continued to be answered. I was going to such a healthy church that communicated the gospel every single week. They were so good at communicating sermons to people who had already been believers for a long time, but also communicating the gospel every single week to new believers, to people who didn't believe, but also to people who believed for a long time, because that is something we should stay excited for. Every single time we go to church, we really do need to hear it every single time we go to church. And so through that process, um, there were so many leaders. My track coach, he was the most consistent adult male figure through my life because I had stayed, even though I had moved a lot, I stayed at the same school for three years. And I spent a lot of time training um, for track. So he was a leader of that. My foster mother, my last foster mother was a leader of that. And then I would say the other really strong leader in the church was she was my youth leader in junior high. Ever since my teacher spoke about, you know, you may end up like your parents, I always thought about my kids. So I knew that I always wanted to be a mother. And this woman who was my youth leader, she's just an amazing mother. She's an amazing wife. She was such a role model to me. She was so graceful and gentle, very high in mercy which is something that I had never experienced with my mom. And again, she was a reflection of Christ. She was Christ-like. And I would say that these are the three main people who were examples to me about how, outside of scripture, how do we live our lives loving people as Christ loves them? That's so powerful. It's powerful to think about God's provision and how the enemy tried to steal it so many times, the truth of who God is by these earthly bad examples of fathers and caregivers. And yet he is the ultimate. <laughs> he is the one, the authority, the one who has the last word. And so I'm so thankful for those people, but ultimately for your savior who is unrelenting. He is unrelenting in his pursuit of you, Tori, and just coming after you and longing for you to know his intimate love, his care for you. And so you have those experiences and you 
what is it called when you're finished with the foster care? You used a word and I'm unfortunately not as familiar with the lingo. Yes, that's okay. It's called emancipation. Emancipation is a big word. Right. It doesn't, it sounds like it's supposed to be good, but I'm guessing it's not good if you don't have a home that you are not adopted into. So most states actually have extended foster care. Okay. When the foster youth turns 18, they don't have to leave foster care. They can stay in their home. Um, If they're going off to the workforce or going off to college, they can be supported by that foster home until they're 21 years old. Or some states, I think, have even went to 24. When I was in care, my county did have extended foster care, but foster youth are sometimes viewed as a liability. So this is going to be a lot more context. My mom never wanted to give up her parental rights. It was very much a pride thing. She birthed me. She carried me. She did raise me for a good amount of time. I was with her, you know, consistently from four to 12. And she did not want to give up her parental rights. So I was never adopted out of care. And if anything happened to me in the foster care system, my mom could come back and sue the state or the county or the caseworkers. So I was pretty much my entire time in foster care wrapped in bubble wrap. It was very isolating and it was a very depressing, dark, sad time because a lot of the things socially that children, youth are able to do I couldn't do. I couldn't go to football games. I couldn't go to bonfires. I couldn't go to a friend's house. If I was going to a friend's house, their parents had to get a background check. They had to turn in their license and their proof of insurance, which most people find kind of, that's that's kind of strange just <laughs> to have a person come over. Mm. So, and they had to get fingerprints and that's very invasive. So, from 12 to 18, I was very, very isolated. And so I actually chose to emancipate out of the foster care system. I had to beg. They had like an emergency court hearing my 18th birthday because I informed them. I said, I'm going to leave the day I turn 18. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go, but I did believe in the Lord. And I, I wouldn't say that this was a very mature faith, but I was like, God has a plan for me. I'll be fine. (laughs) I definitely was not as mature in my faith, but (laughs) I would not advise like every saved foster youth to have that mentality. Yeah. So what happened? So where did that lead you? I I emancipated out of care and I lived with various people in my church community. Wow. Just from house to house. Yeah. I slept on floors and I was happy to, like I was happy to sleep on floors and on couches and wherever I needed to, because for like the first time, I am a very extroverted person. I love people. I've always loved people. And for the first time, I felt like I was able to really be in community, spend time with people, love people, be genuinely loved by people, have deep conversations. One of my favorite characteristics in people is vulnerability. And I felt like for the first time, I was experiencing the love of God, like just like through people overflowing. 
If you've ever watched Veggie Tales or What's in the Bible, then you know that Phil Vischer has a unique gift for unpacking biblical truth in a way that engages kids. His new already best-selling children's storybook Bible, The Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids, includes 52 stories that are whimsically written, vividly illustrated, with a family connection to help readers learn, talk, and pray together. Parents are already loving this Bible. Don't take my word for it. Katie, a mother of three, said the illustrations are winsome, captivating, and effective, and the written content is vibrant, funny, engaging, and above all, biblically and theologically sound. I've read by my fair share of Bibles for children, and this is the best I've read. The Laugh and Learn Bible is a family devotional Bible that provides a big picture, an applicational view of the biblical narrative, and helps your family journey through the Bible in one year. Visit laughandlearnbible.com for links to order the Bible or the ebook or the audio version, which is read by Phil Fisher himself. The Laugh and Learn Bible for Kids makes a great Christmas gift for any child in your life. All right, let's get back to my chat with Tori. Here we go. So I know that you are a mom and you've listened to the podcast because you're a mom. Yes. <laughs> And even that part of your story, I feel like is helpful to us as a body of believers and how we respond to moms who find themselves in similar situations. So talk to us about your journey to becoming a mom. Yes. So I was in college when I got pregnant. I was in my senior year of college. I ran track. Uh And so I was going into my last season. I was not married. I was dating my now husband for not long at all. I don't even know. Not long at all. And we got pregnant. We attended a college coined the most conservative college in the nation. And the the students who attend the college have high religiosity. So getting pregnant there was very, very difficult. And I was so on fire for community in the church. And we absolutely were living in sin. We did sin. I don't want to communicate anything other than that. But when we got pregnant, we really needed the church to just open their arms. I think what I would have really liked looking back was for someone to ask us why. What did we think the root of this was? Because we went into marriage. Of course, every at marriage is hard for everyone. We hear that all the time. But I think our marriage was especially hard because we didn't understand the root of our sin. The sin was having sex before marriage. And so, yeah, that goes away because you're married now, but the root of it doesn't. And now you're raising a baby and you're trying to be a reflection of Christ to this baby, a reflection of Christ to your spouse, ultimately to make one another look more like Christ, but you don't know the root of your sin. So that's like nearly impossible. And we were hurt by the church. We were hurt by members. And I wouldn't say we weren't hurt by members of the church we're going to now. It was more people. When I say church, I mean the the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Yeah. But we were still going to our church at home that was very good, loving, and our pastor did a series on fear. And he did, he talked about fear of the future, fear of man, different fears. And 
the sermon that really spoke to both of us was fear of man. My husband came to the conclusion that he was scared that if we weren't having sex, what would that look like in terms of like, well, what would the guys say? Or what would I think? Like, because he perceived that that's something I really wanted to do. We didn't talk about it, really. We just did it. And then I thought if I didn't have sex with him, he would leave me because I had experienced so many other people leaving. And that doesn't say like, again, that doesn't mean that it's still not sin. Like just because there's some trauma or hurt revolved around it, that doesn't mean that it's still not sin. So this sermon really opened our eyes to why we did what we did, because we both had a fear of each other, of what we would think of one another, not talk, not again, being as mature in our faith as we could have been still not, you know, still not as mature in our faith as we would like to be like ever. We, I don't think we ever really like arrived to that point. But just through that, I think we learned that how important it is to stay in the church when you are really, really hurt by the church. Well, it's like we, with pregnancy outside of marriage or other things, sometimes we rank the sins as one is more extreme than the other. And we treat people with a condemnation that's not from God. Um, all sin, hopefully, we're listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we're turning back to God and we're doing that work you're talking about of why am I drawn to this? What am I believing about myself? What am I believing about others? What am I believing about God? And what happened with y'all is what I'm sensing is in a time when you needed people to point you back to the gospel and to really do some digging and some healing because this consequence of sin, which is really a beautiful consequence, a baby is a beautiful thing. Life is a beautiful thing. But to to kind of take those layers off and say, why are we doing this? And why do we have fear of man? And even, I mean, Tori, your story is so full of wounds and broken places that, I mean, we we all have that. And yet, if it doesn't get met with grace and gospel and community, it just gets shoved down farther and farther and farther. And so, yeah, it makes sense that y'all were grieved at the loss of missional community coming alongside you, pointing you back to the gospel, helping you uncover those roots. And it's a good lesson for all of us to consider when we're in church or interacting with people to, instead of judging, which is not our job, to come alongside fellow believers and talk through why are you drawn to this? Why is that a quote unquote idol in your life? Um, something that draws your time, attention, even if it's a social media addiction, like whatever it is, if we can't come alongside each other and and uproot that, we'll just continue to be drawn to it and to not seek Christ and his forgiveness and in the life available to us. So you had mentioned to me before we got on the call that you notice a trend in your generation, Generation Z, of kind of walking away from church in the name of wanting spirituality and not religion. And I think what you just shared is why that's not going to end up working out, right? Right. And I think I think millennials and Gen Zs, I hear so often that we want to be spiritual and we want to believe in a higher being, but we do not want to engage in the church. We don't want to engage in religious activity and that is impossible because <laughs> the body of Christ is the church. 
and we are not fully engaging in who God is in our full spirituality that God has gifted us with if we are not fully engaged in community. And I empathize with the millennials and with the Gen Z. There's a quote from Brendan Manning that says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And like it goes back to when I lived in that 11th foster home. That is how I felt. But we can't mix our feelings with the truth of the word and with facts. We have to be in the community to fully understand the wounds that people are causing us from the church and the wounds that we that we have caused the church because the church is made of sinful people. And it's not just that, like, I was hurt by the church. I also hurt the church. I hurt people within the church by sinning. It was only being in church that God revealed to me that, like, it's not just the church that wronged me. I wronged the church. I wasn't a good example of someone who was a follower of Christ. People who who had looked up to me, people who respected me and had expectations because I proclaimed the word of God, I failed them. That's not a reason for them to to hurt me and to be sinful towards me. But it, it, we should recognize that as millennials, Gen Zs, people who want to walk away, often want to walk away from the church, we're not the only people being hurt. We're hurting people too. And it's only in the church when we can have the conversations in the community, be present, that we understand how we do that and that we can help others understand how they're doing that. The church would actually be pointless if that's not how things worked. Yeah. If healing didn't ultimately come. It's like the people that cause the harm. There's also people that, that are the healing. Like you had the bad experience in the second to last foster care, but then it was the next one that she revealed the truth of the good news and her actions and her way she cared for you. And so while people who proclaimed Christ can cause such hurt, they can also be such ministers of his healing. And we want to be the second ones. <laughs> like That's our goal. I have a question for you, because I know friends of mine that are applying to be foster parents, wanting to get more involved or already have been a part of the foster care system. As a recipient of that and a part of that, that's a part of your story, what encouragement would you give to them maybe on days where the child that they are inviting into their home isn't overtly grateful or um, it, it seems like, man, maybe I made a mistake. I shouldn't have said yes to this. Maybe I misheard God. This wasn't the assignment he had for me. What would you say to that, that mom or dad? So I'm going to give you a little, a little story. I think of this story. I read it in a book once and it was a story about this boy who he, they say that he was like the ugliest boy and his dad was a prestigious businessman and he had been riding the train. His dad had been riding the train with his son on the way to work. And as they walk up to his dad's door, his job door, his coworkers start winking at his, at his son and the father grabs his son's face and kisses him and says, you are the best thing that has ever happened to me and your mother. And we could never imagine life without you. And 
that son, before his dad did this, the son was really struggling in school and he didn't care to like get up and get dressed in the morning. And then the son went on to be a pastor and an ordained pastor. He was able to have a flourishing life, but without that affirmation from his father, he was not able to have a flourishing life. And when I think about what helped me, I think it was the affirmation of my father, who God says I am. When it comes to all the things that foster youth have been through, the thing that often I would say taints foster youth is that they lack knowledge of their true identity because everyone in everything, their life experiences, the people they have encountered has spoken something different to them. Again, the greatest encouragement to me has been knowing who I am in Christ, knowing that he created me in his image and I'm supposed to be an image bearer. I am an image bearer naturally because I was made by him. And so I think foster parents remembering that that is also true for them, that they are image bearers. And in those hard, hard times to be able to humble themselves and say, I am weak and I'm going to call on God's strength to love this child. And also communicating to the child that they are made in God's image. They are loved despite any kind of behavior or any saddening event that they have been through. I think that identity in Christ is crucial to the relationship of a foster youth and foster parent on the hard and the easy days. Keep their eyes fixed on that. That is the greatest gift they could give. Yes. Yeah. Outside of performance. Oh, yes. Yeah, because we often see that foster youth have a lot of negative behaviors. And then we can also see the foster and adopted youth who, who function out of perfectionism. And when they're not perfect, it crushes them. It takes them out. I mean, performance is usually tied to shame. And shame is a very common feeling. And it's really a psychological reaction to the things that that just all people experience, that we are traumatized, whether they're micro trauma or big trauma, shame is usually effect of, of that cause. And so, yeah, that can only be healed by, by the truth of who we are in Christ. That's good for all of us, Tori. For the mom who's out there and even you today, Tori, with your little one, when we feel like a failure or not enough or our behavior isn't matching what we think it should as a mom or the kind of mom we want to be to trust that that performance record has been swapped with Christ. And when God sees us, he sees that perfection of Christ and not us and to believe that fully so we can walk in freedom and the mistakes we're guaranteed to make and to trust that his love will cover all and fill in the gaps for us on our worst days. (laughs) So I appreciate you, Tori. I know our time is up. I'm so thankful for you. And I hope that listeners will continue to connect with you and for all the things God has in your future and sharing more of your story and encouragement to others to pursue real community, to pursue real identity and to know, um, 
God more fully. So thank you for your time today. Really. Oh, thank you, Heather. Thank you for having me. It was so sweet to talk to you. I get that maybe you're listening and you're like, I love what Tori and Heather are saying, but I don't quite understand some of the words they're using, like preaching the gospel to each other and hope and identity and missional community. And what are those mean? I want to point you back to some episodes I've done with other people where we unpack what is gospel. Uh, Like Joel Fitzpatrick was on the show, Gospel Focused Conversations, episode 251. Paul David Tripp, episode 156, talks about gospel parenting. Jeannie Cunyon, who's been on the show a ton, talks about how it impacts our mothering and what we say to our kids, how we come alongside them and meet them at the foot of the cross. If you just really want to unpack that more, I think it's like this. If you have a day where you're feeling like a failure as a mom, I can come alongside you and say, what are you believing about yourself? What are you believing about God? And if you are believing that you must do things perfectly in order to be approved by God, that your performance uh, dictates approval and love, I get to preach the gospel, which means tell you the good news, the great news that his love for you is not dependent on you keeping all the rules perfectly. That that system in the Old Testament of keeping the law to be right with God was satisfied when Christ died on the cross and rose again. It doesn't mean we no longer sin or do our way over God's way. It just means we have a choice now and it's all taken care of. And when God sees you, um, the love he had for you before Jesus died on the cross, before you even stepped foot on this earth, is the same as it was after you made that choice or you had that day that where you feel like a failure. And so I get to say, no, remember, as moms, we are faithful. We do our best, but he did never expect it perfect. And so that's something we can tell our kids too. Anyway, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I know that for every Tory, there are hundreds more with similar or different versions, but amount of heartache and brokenness and pain and also hope that you extend grace to us through people. I pray, Lord, for the person listening that they would trace back the different ways that you have intersected their story. And if they're still waiting for that intersection, God, that you would open their eyes to see the people that you're placing in front of them that are wanting to tell them the truth of who you are. They would allow that person into their life to speak that truth. Lord, I thank you that you have given us tools of community and of your word and of prayer that we can stay secure when everything around us is shaking and the circumstances look dim and there is apparently no hope that we can hope against hope and believe you believe your promises will come true, that you will return, God, and that you will make all things right. Lord, I pray for Tori right now. I pray for her marriage, and I pray for her son, and I pray for their family, and I pray for the light that you will continue to shine through her as she moves forward in ministry. And Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you all, for listening. I want to highlight an event I'm going to be 
in Dallas, November 9th at Bentry Bible Church. Remember the episode I did with Kat Armstrong? She talked about motherhood, identity, and career. She has a ministry called Polished, and they have invited me to their event that's happening November 9th at 7 p.m., and my friend Haley is going to have a shop there. Hey, honey, if you see me wearing cute clothes lately, they are from her shop. There'll be several other vendors there. It's a great place for women who are stay-at-home moms, working moms, women who are single or uh, married, or I think it's pretty much women <laughs> are invited. Just have a conversation about where we are and trusting God in the spaces that he has allocated for us. Join me there. Go to polishedonline.com to get more information. Look at their DFW events. I've also um, linked to it in a couple different emails. Um, I will put it in this week's show notes. That way you can find it. If you don't get my emails, go to olaheather.com. You can sign up, ola with an H, like heather.com. All right. I'll check you here next week. Adios. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Don't Mom Alone podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more people and more resources to help remind you that you're not alone, head over to don'tmomalone.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guests. Most importantly, I want you to know the good news, the great news that you're not alone because God has promised to always be with you. With faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again, Jesus said when he left, he was going to leave a helper, a comforter to be with us. God in us. Moms, that's superpower. So while you're washing dishes at your kitchen sink, while you're driving to and from work, while you're feeding that baby late into the night, while you're cleaning sticky floors, God promises to be just as present with you as when you're worshiping in a church pew. As it says in Zephaniah 3:17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that's good news. Have a great day.